Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Welcome to a public affair. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm delighted to be your host today and starting today every Monday. Today's show kicks off an occasional series of conversations about climate storytelling and education. I'm honored to have two distinguished storytellers to start this series, Wisconsin writer Nicholas Butler and writer Amy Brady, co-editor of the new anthology, The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. The Atlantic Magazine calls the book a mirror to our lives at a crucial moment in our collective history. We're going to talk about this mesmerizing book of personal essays by some of today's most original literary voices and focus on several that discuss parenting and family in an age of climate crisis. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for our guests or would like to share a perspective about how the climate crisis impacts you and our community, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, you can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. My guest, Amy Brady, is executive director of Orion Magazine and the author of Ice, an American Obsession. She's also the co-editor with Taja Eisen of Catapult Books' new anthology, The World as We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. She lives in New England. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me. And Nicholas Butler is the author of the internationally best-selling novel Shotgun Love Songs and four other books of fiction. His essay, Until This Snow Reaches the Ocean, appears in The World as We Knew It. He lives with his family on a ridge south of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Thanks for being with us, Nick. Thanks for having me, Doug. I'd love to start today with you, Amy, to give us a sense of the origin of this wonderful book and what you and Taja Eisen hope it contributes to conversations about the climate crisis. Sure, happy to. I suppose we could say this book began four years ago in 2018. Um, you might remember even there in Wisconsin that the whole country and actually the world was gripped in a brutal heat wave uh, that sent a lot of people to the hospital. Um, it also, it was hard on our more than human friends, the animals and the plants and the insects of the world. And at the time, um, I, I live on the East Coast now, but I was visiting my hometown back in Kansas. And, you know, this is a landscape that I know as well as the back of my hand. I grew up there. I spent so much time outside. And the heat made the whole place feel strange. Um, the animals and the insects that used to be so loud, you have to holler to be heard over their sounds, had just gone quiet. And it was a very eerie and uncanny feeling. And that feeling stayed with me for weeks afterwards. And whenever I would mention it to other friends, particular writer, uh, writer friends, they would say they'd felt something very similar about places that they knew and loved. And it got me thinking that this is such a widespread feeling and I've never read anyone talk about it. We really need to be paying witness to this moment in time where we're all feeling 
um, uh, sad, scared, but also hopeful, um, and to get that feeling down on the page. And that's when the idea of the anthology came together. And uh, once I had the idea for the anthology, um, I uh, immediately contacted my dear friend, Taja Eisen, who I knew was an editor uh, with impeccable instincts. Um, Taja is currently the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine. She agreed to come on board, and the project took off from there. Wonderful. Thanks for giving us especially that personal uh, origin of the book. And this is a book of personal essays uh, exclusively. And so I'm curious why you and Taja chose this form for the book to uh, widen the conversation about the climate crisis. And I'm curious what you think personal essays open up for us, what kinds of conversations that other forms of literature don't do as easily, or maybe the ways that personal essays approach can approach us this issue a little bit differently. Sure. So when we zoom out and we look at the wider discourse about how the climate crisis is being discussed, we often see it covered at the macro level uh, in terms of you know, communities underwater or engulfed in flames, you know, entire nations, uh, island nations needing to be relocated um, because of sea level rise. And that focus makes sense because it impacts quite literally tens of millions of people. But what's less discussed uh, is how the climate crisis is impacting people at the level of a single life, how it affects our own personal memories, our mental health, our personal relationships, how we come to see our own backyards differently, even if we're not in the immediate path of destruction. And those were the types of feelings and thoughts that I was seeing in close friends of mine and ultimately the writers uh, who generously uh, contributed to this anthology. And so what my hope is, is that these types of essays will help to open up new paths for um, more types of people with different experiences to contribute to this conversation and to think about the climate crisis, not as some large planetary thing that's happening far away from them or in the future, but something that's happening right now and impacts everybody, regardless of your circumstances. Yeah, in the book's introduction, you write, sometimes the connections between the personal and the planetary can be hard to see. But once we start looking, we notice that they're everywhere. And this book takes us far and wide. uh, But when it does so, it also dives deep into places. And that's one of the things that uh, Nicholas Butler's essay does as well. Uh, takes us deep into his home place near Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Um, Nick, I'd like to turn to you and have you tell us about your essay in the book, Until This Snow Reaches the Ocean. When Amy and Taja reached out to you about contributing to the book, where did your mind go and uh, what did you see in your place when you looked around? Yeah, uh, well, um, you know, I consider myself first and foremost a fiction writer and uh, I'm always a little hesitant to share my nonfiction writing because I, I don't feel like I have a great deal of confidence in it. And so when I was invited to be part of this anthology, I said, we're not going to, we're not going to stall on this. We're going to sit down and write this thing immediately. Uh, I don't want to be doing it at the last minute. I don't want to uh, be stressing about this months down the line. So I sat down at my uh, dining room table and I think it happened to be during um a winter where eau claire had experienced a record amount of snowfall and um you know i 
I think I internalize snowfall maybe a little differently than some folks because I have a long driveway which needs to be plowed. And so I plow that driveway and I also plow my neighbors um, as well. And um, yeah, and I just, I, I think I'd been, obviously I'd been dwelling a lot about, you know, kind of the anxiety that I feel and how it relates to my children and you know, thinking about the ways in which I was raised and, and um, the ways in which my, my dad in particular, who I think uh, was kind of ahead of his time, was preparing me for this future. And, and, and the ways in which I wonder if I'm really doing a good job with my own kids. <laughs> so I think I just kind of poured all that into the essay. And um, I'm just, I just feel very honored to be part of this anthology with so many fantastic writers, um, most of whom I have a book or two up on my shelves of. So, There's a startling passage in your essay in which you voice that dilemma that you just talked about, about, you know, am I doing a good job with my kids in particular in relation to talking about this big issue that obviously is going to shape their lives, the climate crisis? Um, and in this passage, um, you're uh, expressing this dilemma about how to in specifically how to talk to children about the climate crisis. Could you read that for us, please, on uh, page 188? It's sort of in the middle of the essay. It's a beautiful yeah, passage. Yeah, sure. I generally try to impart to my children a sense of wonder regarding the natural world rather than the constant sense of impending danger and destruction. And yet, to be realistic and scientific is to engage the horrifying facts. The natural world is under siege, and to ignore that reality is to do myself and my children a disservice. So when they ask me about the plight of orangutans or polar bears or their beloved beaches, I don't lie to them. I can't count the number of years in which I have watched with binoculars ships suction sand a half mile off the Florida coast only to redeposit it back onto hurricane eroded beaches. Walking those shores, my wife and I pass huge pipelines that cough the sand up for its later redistribution by bulldozers. These are images I'd rather hide from my children, but they deserve to know. Miami, they ask gone already going under new york city no doubt they are imagining a map of their known world vectoring in tightly on blue coastlines and romantic cities they may might have seen on family trips others that they know from movies or tv or stories told by relatives these are places i have explored in my lifetime but that may be gone in theirs my world was bigger than the world they will inherit it inherit a sobering thought for a parent focused on trying to ensure a better future for his children. The world I knew and explored was something that, of course, I want to share with my children, not just tell them stories of places that have disappeared. Thank you, Nick. I'm going to reintroduce you here. That was writer Nicholas Butler. And I'm also talking with Amy Brady today about their book, The World As We Knew It, Dispatches, from a Changing Climate, just out this year from Catapult Books. If you'd like to join the conversation with Nick and Amy about the climate crisis and parenting and family in the climate crisis, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT. 
talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Nick, what uh, strikes me there so much in that passage is your honesty about how your desires for your children seemingly contradict what you feel you must prepare them for. Uh, Many parents feel this way. I know I do. What helps you strike a balance between cultivating wonder and sharing those sobering facts? And how do you keep yourself sane in the process? Oh, man, that's, you know, I was thinking about, I was thinking with excitement about joining this program today. And I, and of course, I was also thinking like, this is a Monday early afternoon, you know, and at least where I'm sitting, it's kind of gloomy and we're waiting for a big storm to roll in. And, you know, the desire to not totally depress your listeners, uh, you know, because I was a wart listener for a long time. And I, I, don't, I don't think I really know what the answer to your question is. I mean, I feel like part of the reason why we live where we live, south of Eau Claire, um, was this conscious decision on my wife and I uh, on, you know, on our part to, to rear our children in a place where they were close to nature and where I could point to trees and, and you know, hope that my children would would have a broader understanding of their world the names of trees the names of birds um we could grow our own food we could have chickens these sorts of things but of course like you know there's a paradox there we're burning a hell of a lot of gas to get into town every day which isn't so good you know and some days i wonder like they'll ask me um (laughs) with like genuine warm curiosity about like, what's it like to live in Chicago? What's it like to live in New York? And I just think, I don't, I don't know. Am I doing anything right here? Uh, and um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure how to answer your question. And I think one thing that was heartening in reading this book is that as parents, it seems like a lot of the writers are, are dealing with the same thing, you know? Uh, and, and if they're not parents, they thought long and hard about the decision to not have children almost as like a ecological statement or environmental statement, which uh, I can understand. And in some ways, I, I don't know, I guess I, I applaud in some ways. I, I don't know if I answered your question at all there, Doug. I think it's, it's like an incredibly kind of crippling, confusing time to know what the right answer is. It's a question that, that leads to more questions. Um, and you're, you're right though, to point out one of the things that this anthology gives us is, uh, more voices approaching that question, trying to move the conversation along. And one of those voices is in, uh, a really interesting essay in the book called Mobbing Call by Tracy O'Neill. Amy, I'd like to bring you in to talk about this essay a little bit, uh, where O'Neill narrates her struggle with what Nick was just talking about, what she calls the child question. If she had a child, she writes, I would have brought into being a consciousness who would experience terror for which I could offer no consolation. I was not sure I could abide this story, let alone cause it. And she's speaking specifically of the terror of the the world being um, violently reinvented by the climate crisis. Uh, Amy, I guess you could take that wherever you want, but I was... Thinking as a starting point, how do you see this essay mirroring and adding to the ways many people consider whether or not to have a child today? Mm. Oh, she does so many amazing things in that essay, just like Nick does with his. Um, 
you know, what I, I think both of these essays have in common is that they don't offer easy solutions to the question of whether someone should have kids. Um, you know, I mean, if that was <laughs> a question that had an easy answer, not so many people would be asking it. Um, you know, Tracy's pieces, she adds complexity, you know, to that question by the fact that this is a personal essay. You know, she talks about her own experience growing up um, in New England, uh, specifically in New Hampshire, and has these memories of that New Hampshire landscape looking and feeling a very certain way. And when she goes back as an adult, it's it's changed. And it drives home the fact that just in, uh, you know, the course of a single lifetime, the planet's undergoing extraordinary change and the future is really uncertain. And so that poses a lot of ethical questions of not just what can we do, but what is our responsibility to care for or even to bring in a new generation to deal with these changes. And, you know, like I said, she doesn't offer easy uh, solutions or answers to those questions. And um, I, you know, that's, <laughs> I sh maybe I should have said this as an editor, but you know, there it's, it's an ambiguity that may turn off some readers, but I think we'll also offer comfort to others because in my experience, so many people not are just asking that question, but feel really ambivalent about what the answer should be. One of the questions that she responds to while she's thinking about having a child in the essay is somebody says to her something along the lines of, well, but the world is beautiful, right? And mm -hmm. and she struggles with unequivocally affirming that. I mean, she can affirm that the world is beautiful, but whether that is a rationale for having a child experience the world Um there are all these moments of beauty throughout the, as, throughout the book, Amy. Um, are there some that stand out to you as mm -hmm. uh, resonant with that uh, question of or issue of uh, experiencing the world as a beautiful place is enough? Yeah, there, there really is. Um, the, one of the reasons why this book, um, I think, offers so much complexity and at time ambiguity is because while it does deal with the subject of the climate crisis, which of course is a very big and scary thing, all of these writers um, are optimistic and are looking for beauty and hope. And that's why it's not easy to answer these questions because if everyone was despairing, <laughs> then the answer to the question of what do you do next is well, nothing. <laughs> but these are very hopeful, optimistic people. and. So may, may I read just a couple of sentences? Absolutely. So there is an essay uh, in this book called Star Shift by Gabrielle Below, and it ends, um, I'm not going to read the exact ending, but it's something like this. Um, I, I want to still believe, as I have for decades, that I am just a collection of shifting particles on a planet that came into existence by chance and physics, and not because of some theistic determinism. I want to believe that even even if there is no grand meaning for our lives and our planet has an inf has a finite lifespan, as do our art and dreams, that art is worth making and love is worth finding, that it's worth fighting to preserve a world where dreams are still possible. Um, and in another essay, this is by Melissa Phoebos um, in her essay called Iowa Bestiary, she also touches on this notion of love 
and a desire to find it. Um, she says, don't mistake me. I do feel a wild delight at my bare feet on the ground, the chorus of owls each evening, but increasingly the delight is shot through with grief. And that is what I am finding most precious as time passes. Sometimes grief is not worth much to anyone but be aggrieved, but I have begun wanting to love everything the way that I until recently loved only a few animals as they are with my actions with a stake in their suffering. And what I think both of those endings have in common is that there's an acknowledgement that things are really bad. It's not a Pollyannish, oh, everything's gonna be okay. Um, but that despite things, the fact that things are bad, there is still a desire and maybe even an ethical obligation to seek out love and connection and to live as gently and purposeful on the earth as possible. I'm reminded uh, in hearing those of, of W.S. Merwin, uh, the American writer and poet, talking about, yes, we must acknowledge that uh, things are terrible, but because things are terrible, we should live in the world as completely as we can, mm -hmm. essentially, to paraphrase him. Um, and, and to come back around to that experience of parenting and family, Nick, you mentioned your father earlier. Uh, one way to think about having ch children is as a profound gesture of belief in the future that we are continuing on as a species. In your essay, you talk about your, your father as a prepper and his conviction that his primary duty was to prepare you as a feral kid like the one in Mad Max 2. Um, tell us more about this experience and how it shaped how you think about preparing kids for the future. Yeah, my dad was... Uh... I speak about my dad. If I speak about my dad in the past tense, it's not because he's gone from this planet. It's because he's um, he had a massive brain aneurysm about 23 years ago, and he's been living in a nursing home ever since. Otherwise, he surely would be tuned in uh, to listen to this right now. Um, he was a very intense man in a lot of ways. And one thing that he would say to me, especially when I think he was feeling anxious or maybe when he was under the influence was what would you do if I wasn't here? What would you do to help your mom and to help your younger brother? And so I grew up with this, this feeling that uh, this feeling of doom, I guess that he wasn't always going to be there and that I needed to, I needed to have some sort of skills or I needed to have some sort of plan and um, in childhood, this kind of took the form of, of Boy Scouts. Um, you know, and I talk about this in the essay that the, the theme of Boy Scouts or the motto is be prepared. Um, and he really, he loved that organization from that standpoint, that I was learning these basic skills that I was connected to nature in a different way um, than other kids that I was growing up with. And so I think... The, some of those lessons, some of the things that he was saying to me throughout childhood kind of drifted away into the back of my consciousness. And then when I started to have my own children, uh, the voice became louder. And as I aged towards that point where my father, you know, suffered his aneurysm at age 48 or 49, it gets increasingly louder. Um, yeah, and he used to, I remember he used to sit in our house and watch the Mad Max movies over and over again. I mean, not like 
every night, but probably every couple months. And they're super intense, you know, for a small boy to be watching those movies, it is not, those, those movies are graphic and they're violent. And as a representation of the future that I was growing into is really um, scary. So these days, you know, I'm thinking about raising my kids and I'm, I'm a much more stable person than my dad, but I think like, God, maybe he was right. Maybe that's what we're headed for. And, and do I need to be harsher with these kids or you know how do i how do i how do i prepare them for this future that we're talking about throughout this anthology and i just find that that part of his personality really isn't in me you know and that i've had to find different ways of of communicating that and i touched on some of those things before but um for parents listening to this or it sounds like doug you're a parent like one little thing that I do on our property, which is a hopeful gesture, is that um, we have a giant white pine, uh, like probably a hundred-year-old white pine. And anytime it drops its pine cones in earnest, I, I collect them all and I carry them out into the field and broadcast these pine cones everywhere. And now there's parts of our property that are growing, you know, little white pine trees. And I like to take the kids on walks around our properties and point to those trees and be like, see, I did that. You know, those are there because I, I, I didn't just uh, run the lawnmower over top of those things and rake it up and throw it in a garbage bag or something like that. It's, this is something that I believe in that I'm, I hope you believe in this land too. I hope you love this land. And I hope that even though you think this is corny now, you know, maybe when I'm gone, you'll say like, Oh, my dad, my dad planted those or he transferred some of those trees. And I also tend to think, and I need to do a better job of this with my children, but um, there's something really profound in simply planting a tree. And I think a bit, a little bit uh, in the same way that I think about writing. When uh, new writers talk to me about like, how do I get to a point where you're at? I say, well, you need to, you need to invest in yourself. You know, you need to take workshops. You need to um, do something beyond just spending simple time on the computer, which you, you know, you might be just Googling things or looking at ESPN.com in between the times when you're working on your piece. You need to invest in this and make your dream sort of real. And I think when you plant a tree, it's this investment in the future, which is like almost cliche to us, except that if you've ever done it before, all of a sudden you're invested in that part of the planet. You're invested in that organism. You're invested in staying put, which I think is hugely important. You know, when I was gathering my thoughts about today, I, I kept coming back to this quote that my friend, Bill Hogseth, who's a community organizer here in West Central Wisconsin, he always, he always conjures up this quote by Gary Schneider, which I'm going to badly butcher, but it basically the only hope for America is that we all stay in our hometowns and neighborhoods. Because if you do that, you're invested in this intergenerational knowledge about a piece of land. You know, you're not going to quit on it. You're not going to move away. You know what the challenges are and you want to make it better. And I think that's been another part of living where we live. You know, we're in constant contact with grandparents and neighbors. And I don't know if it's working. I don't know if it's going to make things better, but it's like the most hopeful gesture that I, I've figured out so far. <laughs> 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking with writers Nicholas Butler and Amy Brady about the book The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. It's a beautiful book of personal essays from some of today's most prominent literary voices. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. I love that idea of hopeful gestures, uh, Nick, and your description of some of the hopeful gestures uh, you enact with your children. Um, Kids love those kinds of hopeful gestures, and while they're doing it, inevitably they ask a lot of questions as well, right? And one of the things that pops up in this anthology a lot are these kinds of questions that uh, kids ask, or in this case, you hear another parent asking, I'm going to talk a little bit about this essay, another one I really love called Signs and Wonders by Delia Falconer. And she asks here, how do I answer my seven-year-old daughter when she asks unprompted, is it true the world's going to end soon? The author leaves the question hanging, but suggests that allowing ourselves to feel fear, awe, and rage equivalent to the ways we've distorted nature is, quote, what might save us all human and non-human, in the long run. So I'm interested in having both of you talk a little bit about the value of embracing big emotions. This uh, dichotomy that uh, Delia Falconer is setting up is basically like, we've created a a violent beast in nature, and uh, maybe the way to address that is to look at the... um, not necessarily violent, but biggest emotions that we can feel as humans to figure out how to address what we've done. Amy, what's your sense of the value of embracing big emotions and talking about the climate crisis? Mm, I am all for anyone feeling anything when it comes to the climate crisis, because it's not like we just discovered this week that climate change is a problem. I mean, scientists have known about it since the late 19th century. You know, the American government has known about it at least since the mid 20th century. Um, It became a part of the public consciousness, you know, when James Hansen gave his testimony in front of Congress in the late 1980s. Um, This isn't a new problem. And yet, I mean, if, if people were actually facing what was actually happening, we would, there would be some sort of political will (laughs) or change. And there, and there just, there isn't, I mean, we're arguably a little better now than we were two years ago, but um, there's just not a lot, a lot of movement. And a big part of that is we're just not seeing enough people speak up with urgency and anger. And so I'm, I'm all for that. Um, you know, I'm also all for healthy avenues <laughs> for expressing those things. Um, I'm sure, you know, Nick has um, his own thoughts on that, especially in terms of modeling that sort of expression for children. But um, I will just say that, you know, there there are more outlets now than ever before. There are grassroots organizations that are looking for help. There are, you know, people who are working to drive the vote. Um, You know, there are, uh, you know, community 
um, organizers uh, who are working in terms of you know political action in local garden building and sustainability practices. Um, I would say embrace the big emotion, get angry, get urgent, and then channel that emotion towards taking some sort of action. Nick, emotion and big emotions in particular. Well, I like everything Amy's putting down for sure, but I, uh, you know, I mean, boy, one thing I love about my my kids' generation or the younger adults that I've taught at the college level is they are they are empathetic, they are sensitive, and uh, I think they're going to do a better job than our parents did, and maybe better than we did. So. The question is how do you how do you sort of engage that you know and um i'm kind of aware that when you have a conversation like that there's a certain amount of uh privilege you know when i when i suggest certain things like um man i i get our, me and my wife take our kids to national parks every chance we get when we get a fall break that is our vacation of choice and sometimes it's unpopular with our children who want to go to a comfortable hotel or a big city or something like that but i think part of what we're trying to show them are the big emotions that we're talking about and also trying to you know remind them or or teach them that you know there's there's commonwealth in this country our national parks are a commonwealth you know, uh, and don't let anyone tell you differently and don't let anyone try to tell you that they can be sold or broken apart or, or uh, you know, and when you get people out into environments like that, they get it and they're invested in it. Again, you know, that word invest. I, and I was thinking about my time, my 10 years living in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was thinking about like, you know, suggestions for parents there to, to get your kid out into the wild and to get them fired up about nature. And it's it's pretty easy in Madison, actually, aside from being a beautiful city on its own. I mean, if you take a kid to Parfreeze Glen, they're going to get it. You know, they will be in love with that place and have memories of that place and want to come back. If you take them to Devil's Lake, they're going to get it. If you take them to Natural Bridge State Park, they're going to get it. Um and uh, so I think so much of it is just, you know, we don't always get, we don't always understand things the first time, but the more that we're immersed in nature, the more we love it. And kids get that kind of intuitively. So you just gotta you gotta kind of get them out there and um, and give them a chance. Yeah. So you're echoing that idea that uh, discovering care about the places where we live is sort of the the root of that big emotion that's going to lead to to change. We are talking with uh, Nicholas Butler, novelist, fiction writer, and Amy Brady, writer and co-editor of the anthology The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. And we have a caller on the line. Greg, you're on with Nicholas Butler and Amy Brady on A Public Affair. Oh, thank you. Thank you. The, the reason I wanted to touch base was um, I, 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 it, there's a lot of pessimism around global warming, and some of that I get. But I just wanted to put a few things in perspective. I'm an older guy, so uh, bear with me a little here. But one of the perspectives on global warming is California started keeping records of temperatures 
it, uh, since the late 1800s. So being optimistic, let's call it 150 years, 150 years versus billions of years that the Earth has existed uh, is, you know, a drop in the ocean, literally a, a drop of water in the ocean. Um, in addition to that, that 150-year uh, history, in the 1970s, uh, I was, that was when, in my youth, okay? <clears throat> and uh, in the 1970s, scientists told us that uh, oil would not exist by the year 2000. We would run out. Uh, they, they also told us in the 70s, because we were in the 60s and 70s, that we were going through very cold times. They said <clears throat> we were entering another glacial age. And the irony of that, I, I think we both, everyone would agree, is neither of those have come true. That's some, some, someone spitting in the wind and thinking they, they hit a home run. <clears throat> anyway. So, so Greg, you're, you're, you're giving us a, a big perspective here, asking us to think in big perspectives. Did you have a question for Amy and Nicholas today? Well, I do. I would, I would just, like, I'd just like everyone to kind of, you know, the positive thing that's happening and this is just my last comment, the positive thing that's happening is, number one, people are aware the temperatures and that are changing. And oil, fortunately, has gone from being the primary source of heat and energy in our society to a bridge energy. It's, 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 it's the bridge that's going from the way things were to the future of renewable resources. And I think that's a very positive thing. And I think if people had some faith in mankind and in God would be a good start, that it's not all one person or one man that makes up uh, all these terrible things. Uh, they're, they're, have faith in something, you know. Get outside of yourself. And uh, like the gentleman said earlier, he plants trees in it. That's great stuff. That's okay. where it starts to get a perspective of what, what nature is and that we're, we're, we're responsible uh, people that, that uh, occupy this planet. Thank you so much for calling in, Greg, and offering your perspective, uh, a voice of affirmation there for uh, those hopeful gestures that uh, Nicholas was talking about earlier. We have another caller on the line right now who wants uh, to further the conversation about how to talk about the climate crisis with friends and family. Ross, you're on a public affair. Hi, you guys. Thanks for uh, you know bringing this subject up, and I'm looking forward to getting this book because it's pretty hard to read the newspapers and uh, the science journals and all that about the sort of the ugly trajectory of things. We, we sort of need the, the storytellers and the thinkers uh, to help us absorb this. I'm, I'm like 60 some years old. I didn't have kids. It just, they never happened. And, uh, but I never imagined w what it would be like. It's one thing to sort of say, well, we can hope to make our city better, like uh, improve, maybe hopefully improve race relations. Things that are, that would just be an example, things that you feel like you could change. But this is like one of these predicaments where you look at kids and it's like you don't want to scare them. I mean, I, I can be talking with adults and it can, you know, it can get pretty grim. You know, you can get all sort of negative. But when you, you don't want to talk like that with kids, so how do you guys think uh, you broach the subject? How do you sort of discuss it without trying to ignore it and pretend like it's not there, but truly address it with families, say, you know, near uh, close family and relatives, and especially kids? Thanks for the question, Ross. Amy, we'll turn to you. You're a, 
nationally prominent thinker about climate crisis and, and communicating about the climate crisis, what would be your first response? Well, I will um, let Nick talk about uh, how to broach these issues with young young people and kids. He's much more an expert in that arena than I am. But um, I will say with um, my own friends, families, colleagues, um, and, and people I just want to get to know better, um, it helps to remember that fear alone isn't a motivating um, emotion. That people feel, I mean, this is, this is, there have been empirical studies about this. It's much more likely that a person will take an action um, if they feel like there is something that they can personally do. And so when I have a conversation about um, the climate crisis, I like to talk about it in terms of concrete things that a person can do in their own backyard or their own community. You know, whether it's like Nick and planting a tree or whether it's um, helping uh, an elderly neighbor who doesn't have a car to get to the polls to uh, vote for a candidate who um, uh, understands or, or at least believes in the science um, or to, um, you know, to, to have a conversation um, you know, with uh, other people in the community about what sort of sustainable changes a, a community can make at the local level. Um, being solutions oriented is, in my experience, the best way into every conversation and just tailoring those solutions to the age group and ability to the person you're speaking with helps a lot. Thanks, Amy. Nick, would you like to respond to Ross's question, particularly thinking about talking to kids? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually being from the state of Wisconsin, um, I can provide you with a, like two opportunities that I point to with my kids all the time. Uh, I don't know how old Amy is or how old you are, Doug. I'm 43. And when I was growing up here in Wisconsin, it was a big deal to see a bald eagle when I was a kid. It was the kind of thing you would like stop the car, stop whatever you were doing and point to, oh my God, there's a bald eagle. Now there's so many bald eagles that like in northern Wisconsin, they're almost considered a pest, you know, same thing with sandhill cranes. There were no cranes on the landscape or very, very little when I was a kid. I don't remember the call of a sandhill crane as a kid. Now, every spring, it's one of the things I look forward to most. Um, why is that related to Wisconsin? Well, we've got the National Eagle Center right along the Mississippi River. You can go tour that facility. And if you want a really hopeful statement uh, about political cooperation uh, in America, visit there. They, they will talk about um, reviving the bald eagle as a species in completely nonpartisan terms by just saying, like, we all agreed this was a problem and we all agreed we needed to fix it. And that was that. And, um, you know, so I point to these organisms when I see them. And I tell my kids like, that wasn't here when I was a kid. And this is why it's here now. Those are just two examples. But as I was sitting here thinking about it, I did not see coyotes when I was a kid. Now, coyotes are like a nightly part of my soundtrack here in the, uh, uh, in the country. Fishers, bobcats, um, where do you wanna, I mean, where else can we go? There's a lot of species that aren't like, um, 
<laughs> what we would consider to be a nuisance that we might consider majestic species that are coming back and they're coming back because we made a concerted effort to bring them back. So I think pointing to things like that um, and saying to kids like, you know, you can change things. Um, it matters and it's proof. Yeah, those are great examples. I was thinking about turkeys as well, wild turkeys yes. and how common yes. they are. Um, great examples of the human capacity for restoration, right? On the one hand, we have this incredible capacity for destruction, but we also have this capacity to work together in particular. And several writers in this book really stressed that uh, idea of this as a collective problem that requires a collective solution and uh focusing on animals that have been a part of collective solutions or research through collective solutions, I think is a, a great place to focus kids' attention and connect to that sense of wonder and care we've been talking about. We still have time if you'd like to uh, share an experience, perspective, or question for Amy Brady and Nicholas Butler and the book, The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. I would like to spend a little bit of time before we have to close also just talking about the literary landscape and uh, the issue of the climate crisis in the literary landscape. Uh, as a um, fiction writer, Nick, uh, I'm sure you've thought about uh, how this issue does or doesn't play out in the context of short stories and novels. And over the last few years, in particular since Amitav Ghosh's book, The Great Derangement, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, climate crisis role in fiction and how it may or may not be incorporated and what it says about the literary landscape um, when we do or don't incorporate it. And uh, Amy, I know this is obviously something that you've written about a lot as well. Um, so I'm interested in hearing from both of you about how you think about both creative nonfiction, fiction, and poetry as well, uh, evolving as we face the climate crisis. Uh, Amy, could you start us off? Yeah, happy to. Well, when I started, um, you know, studying and reading what we might call climate fiction in earnest, you know, it was a good seven, eight years ago. And at that time, um, you know, trying to find a, a novel a month that I could really think about from a climate perspective was was kind of difficult. And now, you know, there's like six or eight that seems to be published every three or four weeks um, whose central theme has something to do with the, the climate crisis. And it's not just in what we would might call genre fiction, which was really the case several years ago. It's, it's now um, working its way into the entire literary landscape um, to the point where I'm almost wondering if the term climate fiction is becoming a bit old fashioned, it's kind of just fiction. Because if a writer wants to write about the world, um, not just as we knew it, but as it's happening right now, they need to talk about the climate crisis or it's it might as well be taking place on a different planet. Nick, would you like to add anything about the literary landscape? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I'd echo everything that, that Amy had to say, I mean, uh, I think when I was um, in my early 20s living in Madison, you know, uh, around Canterbury books all the time, it would probably would have just been somewhere in the nature writing category. You know, I don't know if there was a whole lot of specific writing about climate change. Uh, so I'm pleased that it's becoming something that's easier to find. Uh, 
I don't know. For me, I think, I think whatever story that you're writing, at least from the fiction standpoint, uh, my, my kind of motto is that you have to do what's best for the story and for the characters. And so you need to find an authentic way of telling that story. I think like in my book, Little Faith, the main character is a guy named Lyle who lives in rural Wisconsin, close to the Mississippi River. And he becomes kind of a caretaker of an orchard. And so the so-called climate change politics of that book are pretty uh, subtle. But what you see is that this character is experiencing changes in his climate through the apple trees and through the orchard, you know, and it's not my intent to um, clobber somebody over the head with, with my own politics, but rather to kind of uh, trick them into uh, agreeing with my politics <laughs> somehow, hopefully through empathy or love or whatever. Um, but, uh, but I'm glad to see that more people are writing about it. Amy, what are some of the most uh, exciting new voices that you've heard of, either included in this book or, or seen lately, um, that you'd like to share uh, are telling compelling climate stories these days? Yeah. Well, um, what's interesting is that the writers in, uh, in this anthology, I would say about half of them, maybe even not quite half of them, have written um, fiction or nonfiction about the climate crisis. But the other half, haven't. And that was on purpose because we wanted to try to bring writers who weren't known for writing about this subject into the conversation. And when we reached out, um, we, we were very lucky when all of these writers said yes. It, it wasn't just a yes, it was a resounding yes because they have a story to tell. It's just nobody had asked them to say it before. And so um, from what I have heard, almost everybody <laughs> who's in this anthology, if they don't have um, essays or a novel uh, that is directly about the climate crisis that's published yet, there's one on the way. Um, one recent one in particular is by Alexandra Kleeman. Uh, I would absolutely seek out her work um, wherever you can find it. She's a relatively new writer but is uh, approaching the climate crisis from such um, unique and powerful angles. And of course, Kim Stanley Robinson, who's been publishing for decades, remains, to my mind, one of the best science fiction writers um, that we have working. And almost anything you pick up by him um, will discuss the climate crisis, at least obliquely, and it'll be brilliantly written. And he is in uh, your book as well, right? Isn't yes, no, both year? of them are in this yeah. anthology. We're going to try to bring in a caller real quick here. Uh, Steve, you're on a public affair in the last couple of minutes we have. Hey, good morning. Hey, I spent my career in uh, elementary and middle schools, and I'd just like to put in a, a call for uh, humility from our guests. The future is in good hands. There's some paternalism, ageism going on here. Kids have it figured out. They're insightful. Uh, I can't wait for them to, to be in charge. My message is, guests, the future is in good hands. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Nick or Amy, quick reply here. Yeah, I think I said the same thing, Steve. I totally believe in the next generation. They're more empathetic, kinder, more curious, I think, than I was. I, when I reflect on who I was as a teenage boy, I was a, a complete barbarian. And that is not what I've seen in classrooms uh, of younger people right now. So I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, same, Steve. And also thanks to you for continuing to nurture that empathy. 
Um, I'm so glad to know that the, the kids are all right. And um, with good teachers like you, they'll grow up to be adults that are all right, too. I think that is a wonderful place for us to leave this conversation, not exclusively about the future. It's been about the present and the past, too. But um, we do need to draw it to a close today. We've been talking with Amy Brady, co-editor with Taja Eisen of the book The World as We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate, out from Catapult Books. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amy. Oh, thanks for having me, Doug. And we've also been talking with writer Nick Butler and contributor to The World as We Knew It. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Nick. My pleasure, too. Thanks for having me. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Shali, for your help. It's great to be on this team with you all. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat on today's show. Stu Levitan talks with author Peter Fauerbach about the book Fauerbach Brewing Company. Supported, live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and support it. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another man.